0: I confess to the first service that these special message times are particularly challenging for me because, you know, normally through our week and through our months that we just go right through the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, I always know where I'm going to preach next. I can just kind of dig in right away and get to work. But when it comes to special messages like Easter, I know a lot of you are visiting here. You've not been here before. Some of you uh, have been here before, but maybe it's been a while. And some of you brought relatives and you're expecting me to be on and to be funny and all that stuff. And so there's pressure, man, the pressure. It's hard to be on when you get up at 4.30 in the mornings. And I had to get up at 4.30 because I had to make sure I got my hair done before church. So we had sunrise service and just reading through the Gospels and just enjoying reading the stories fresh again. So finally, as I prayed, the Lord brought me to Ephesians chapter 2, which is a fantastic resurrection passage. Uh, All of 1 Corinthians 15 discusses the resurrection, discusses it from the standpoint. And Paul says, if in this life only our hope is in Christ, then we are of all men most pitiable. And he goes on to talk about our resurrected bodies, the fact that the resurrection of Christ means that those that are his will also be resurrected and with him will have a new body and and all that is true. And I think as a group, we would say, yeah, we agree with that. We believe in that. We know that there's this future truth about the resurrection. Maybe some of you, you're the skeptic. You're not sure if you even believe that that happened. And and really, I apologize, but I'm not going to be speaking directly to you about that today. That's one of those directions that I could have chosen to go in. You know, all the proofs for the resurrection and the empty tomb and the, the apostles. And they'd all run and hidden. And then they came back after Jesus was risen. And so the church existence, the fact that we're here, I mean, if the Bible ended in the 27th chapter of Matthew, then we wouldn't be here, right? If the crucifixion happened and Jesus was buried and that was it, then we wouldn't be here and we wouldn't have a Bible to read and we wouldn't have all of this to enjoy You know, have you ever thought about this? You ever ask someone, I met a guy who was a Muslim one time. And I said, why should I be a Muslim? I was just curious as to his answer. Because I've thought about that. Have you thought about like, if anybody asks you, why should I be a Christian? How would you answer that? Well, because it makes me feel good. Whatever, you can say a thousand things. And that's what this fellow told me. I said, why should I be a Muslim? He said, because it's the way to the highest spiritual truth. So I got to thinking about why would I tell people to be a Christian? And I boiled it down to this. Because it's true. That's simple, right? Why should I be a Christian? Because it's true. Because it doesn't matter how it makes me feel or not feel or gets me excited or not excited. The point is, is that Christianity is true. The resurrection happened. And I could argue that and we could have that conversation. But for those of you that maybe become skeptical about that, again, know that you can research that out. And for those that want to know the truth, it's very easy to find. Any of you wasted time trying to argue someone into heaven? I've never argued someone, because usually if there's an argument happening, like it's not going to go well because they're resistant to it. And so in the beginning of the book of Acts, the writer, Luke, a medical physician, he writes a letter to a guy named Theophilus, great Greek name. To Theophilus, he says, this is the continuation of the ministry of Jesus. It started in the gospels, but now it's the ministry of Jesus. How many of you know you can't keep ministry if you're dead? right? So the book of Acts is the continuation of the ministry of Jesus through the power of his Holy Spirit in the church, in his disciples. And so he writes the book of Acts to tell this man, Theophilus, that he can trust his faith in Christ because not only is this the book of the continuation of his work, but he says that Jesus, after he was crucified, showed himself alive by many infallible proofs. For a science guy like Dr. Luke, to say this has been demonstrated by many infallible, decisive, convincing, as their synonyms, truths. That's pretty big words coming from a scientist, right? Medical background. So I will leave you with that. You can search it out, read the book of Acts, and read all of church history, and you'll see that there's plenty of evidence for the risen Christ. So we're not going to go that direction. My concern is for us. We come and we celebrate, well, some of us, some of us celebrate on Easter Sunday. I think some of us are not quite sure what to make of Easter Sunday. I mean, we celebrate yes, Jesus is alive, and I'm going to have a resurrected body and it's kind of it's something that happens in the future. There's some distant thing I'm waiting for that involves resurrection, and that's what I'll celebrate, but for right now, I just feel like I'm kind of on my own. I'm not really sure how the resurrection impacts me today. Have you ever asked anybody that? I mean, I started asking people, getting my mind wrapped around Easter Sunday. I started asking people. So tell me, How does the resurrection of Jesus affect your life today? What does that mean for you today? Really, I got a lot of confused looks. Imagine me asking you that question right now. How does the reality of the resurrection of Jesus, what does that mean to me today for my life? I mean, I got bills to pay. I got kids rebelling. You know, I got all kinds of stuff happening. I just lost my job. I mean, life is happening And I hear about your resurrection, but I have no idea what that means for me. And so I'm hoping that by the end of today, you'll have an answer for that question. By the end of today, meaning that I'm going to preach till about five tonight. (laughs) So by the end of the day, no, by the end of our time together, 30 minutes or so. Because I'll tell you what, for me, every day, not only is every Sunday celebrated by remembering the resurrection of Christ, but every day, listen carefully, every day of my life, is a reminder that Jesus is alive every day. Because the life I now have, the things that give me life, the things that I derive life from are completely different from the things I used to try to find life from. I do not have the life I used to have. The greatest proof of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is that he's calling somebody right now. And you should answer that phone. The greatest proof, listen, the greatest proof of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is I have a life that was changed. I mean, that's not something it's, Christianity is not about showing up once a week to a building, getting some head knowledge and trying to live differently and trying to apply what I learn. That's part of it. But at its core, church is about not good people getting better. This is not my quote. It's not about making good people better or bad people good. It's about dead people that are made alive. And I believe, I'm just foolish enough to believe, and I think I could say by experience, that that ought to change the way we live. We ought to experience that every day. Do you agree with me on that? Do you agree that those of us that call ourselves God's people, that say, hey, we believe in the resurrection, we believe in Jesus, then that ought to, someone should see your life and know that that's true because of the way you live, because of the things that you do, the way that you think, the way that you're now wired. Does that mean we never struggle? No, it doesn't mean that. But that's not our way of life anymore. These things happen to us. We deal with anxiety, but anxiety is no longer a way of life. We struggle sometimes with discouragement and hopelessness. By the way, on the way in this morning, I was listening to a radio program and they were talking about that culturally, you know, over the years, over generations, there's this swing in optimism. You know what optimism is, glass half full, optimistic. And so there's this swings that some cultures are more optimistic than others. Well, you know, we're living in a, a culture that lacks optimism right now. And what happens when you live in a culture that lacks optimism is you live for the day. When there's no hope for the future, when I don't know what the future's all about, then what do I have left? I just got to squeeze all I can out of this life. And you've read about it in the Bible. It's mentioned, I think Paul mentions it in Corinthians in that same resurrection passage. Some people say, hey, if there's no future, let's eat and drink. Why? For tomorrow we die. That's what the common person would say. Hey, there's no tomorrow. There's no resurrection. There's no heaven. We don't believe in all this stuff. So what that produces in a culture is the attitude of, hey, let's eat and drink because tomorrow we die. I mean, if this is all I have, do you know that the incidence of affairs goes up right after a funeral? There's a great challenge after that funeral. Part of grief is that people have affairs. And the reason is because you're now confronted with this reality of your own mortality. And you go, well, if this is it, I got to get into something more fun than what I got. I mean, I got to live for today. And so We may struggle with discouragement, but you can't be a Christian and not be optimistic. We have a God who raises the dead. And what I'm hoping is that you don't just believe it mentally. This is not just theology class. I believe that our theology should be experienced. So that's why we're in Ephesians chapter 2. The end of chapter 1, what Paul lays out is that all of Ephesians, by the way, is about our identity in Christ. So I'll be speaking mostly to those of us that are believers. The letter that Paul writes to the church in Ephesus. Ephesus is a city in modern day Turkey. There was a church there. There's about 350,000 people in this city. And Paul writes, the apostle Paul who authored this letter, he writes to encourage this church about all that is connected by them being connected to Jesus Christ. All the blessings, all the things that you get that happened to you, that are part of your life because you're a believer in Jesus, because you're a follower of Jesus. It's just reminders. Don't we need that reminder sometimes? Sometimes we get envious of other people. We get envious of the world. And so Paul writes to remind them. And before he reminds them of what they have, he has to remind them of what Jesus did. So I'm just going to read to you a little section to build our way up to chapter two. He's praying for the church. And in a great prayer, He says, when I pray for you, I do not cease to give thanks for you. And I mention you all the time when I pray. And he's speaking this to the church. He says, here's what I pray. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. He says, I pray that the more you know him, the wiser you are, and the more things get revealed to you, get uncovered. You notice more stuff. You see what's really behind things. You're not as gullible. So I pray for you that you have the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge that the closer you get to Jesus, the more you understand yourself and the world you live in. And that the eyes of your understanding be enlightened. Like all of a sudden, light breaks forth into your understanding and that you may know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And if you've been sleeping, now wake up. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, seated him at the right hand in heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age but also in that which is to come. So, Paul says, hey, I'm praying for you. I want you to understand the hope of this calling. I want you to understand the power of God. That same power that was demonstrated in raising Jesus from the dead, but not just raising him from the dead, raising him from the dead and then putting him in the seat of honor in heaven. He's seated at the right hand of God. That's the seat of honor. That's the place of honor. If you're the guest of honor, that's where you sit. So he establishes, okay, this is what is true for Jesus. Why does he take the time to establish that this is true for Jesus? Because the only way it's going to be true for us is if it's true of him. You know, imagine God taking his divine super glue and gluing you together with Jesus. What God has joined, let not man separate, right? And if God has joined you to Christ, that's a very strong union. And so we're joined to Christ. That means wherever he goes, we go. We're stuck to him. That means whatever we have, we only have because we are United together with Him. Now, this is a theological truth that has tremendous personal application. So he establishes it. This is where Jesus is. Now the question is, where are you? Like Jesus is alive. I mean, if you wanted to title the sermon, you could say, "Jesus is alive." How about you? Like, do you feel alive? Now, don't tell me, because some of you might say, "Yeah, I feel alive when I'm out partying." See, you can feel alive doing things that are sinful that's probably not a good sign. But my question is, if you think about it, if I ask you the question, inside of you, are you alive? Do you experience this feeling of life? And again, I'm not defining it because I'm just kind of going with your inner conscience. What does your inner conscience tell you? Now, if you're a believer, I hope your inner conscience is telling you, yes, I know I am alive, but yes, I know, I know, I know that I'm alive. I feel alive. Like my life has purpose. My life has meaning. I'm going places. I'm doing things. I'm following the Lord. That should be every believer's experience. You know what happens when that is our experience? It changes the way we pray, changes the way we sing, changes everything. The challenge comes when we sing all these great worship songs, but we have no personal connection to the truth we're talking about. And then really our heart is not in it. And I want your heart to be in it. So I want you to know what it is that you believe and know how this impacts your life. Okay, so pastor, get on with it. Okay, we're getting on with it. Chapter two, verse one says, and you. We've been talking about Christ. Christ. And now we're talking about who? I am talking talk about you. Yes, and me too. Talking about me. And you, I'm just going to read a section and we'll talk about it. And you, he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, And we're by nature children of wrath, just as the others. Man, Paul can lay out a mouthful, can he? Well, first I want you to notice that the words he made alive, if I'm reading in the New King James, the words he made alive are in italics. That means the translators, as they were translating this, said, well, it doesn't really read smoothly. So we're going to make sure you understand what Paul is saying. And so they insert that there. That's why it's in italics. It's still true, but Paul doesn't actually get to that until he gets down to verse four. The first section is all about what these believers in Ephesus, about what they used to be. And sometimes the important thing in your life is you gotta remember where you came from. And I hope, again, that as you look at your life, what keeps you celebrating, what keeps you motivated, what keeps you kind of worshiping is the fact that you can look back at the life that you had and go, wow, I can't believe that was even me. I mean, at the root of it, we've come to these places in our lives and in our world where like 9-11, remember when 9-11 happened? Do you remember where you were when that whole thing went down? changed our lives forever, didn't it? That's a world-changing event. We can't travel the same anymore. I mean, it has changed everything, changed the way we live. And we can't go back. Like there's no going back. The invention of the cell phone, the smartphone, has that not changed the way we live? I mean, that's a piece of equipment. It's a little computer equipment thing. But it changes the way we live, changes the way we interact with each other, changes the way we think, changes the way we operate, changes the way we buy clothes and stuff on Amazon, changes everything. There's no going back. So if that's true of those things, shouldn't it be also true of the resurrection of the life where Jesus Christ makes me alive? Like where I get life from him? Shouldn't that change things? And if you don't see a change, like if you say, well, I've been coming to church, but you go out there and you go through the religious routines in here and then you go out there and you live the same life that you've always been living, then I'm going to say something's probably wrong with that. That maybe you think you're alive because you have a form of godliness, but Paul would say that's a danger in having a form of godliness and denying the power of it. You think, well, I believe in the resurrection, but I don't know if God can change me. You think I'm stuck with who I am. This is just my life. I'm born Irish and I just have that Irish temper. That's just who I am. And you fail to acknowledge in your everyday life that again, God raises the dead, that you put your trust in not a dead God, but a God who raises the dead. And that changes things. So here he lays out our past life. The problem isn't, I didn't have a marriage problem. I didn't have a financial problem. I had a death problem, right? Isn't that what he says? and you who were dead in trespasses and sins. That means we were defined since the time we were born because of our great, great, great times a million, grandfather Adam, back in the garden, when they sinned, they died. And we inherited that death from him. We were all born separated from God. Think about it this way. I asked this question, turned out to be a more difficult question than I expected. By the way, my wife is in Florida. Don't tell her I cut this from her plum tree. Can you guys keep a secret? Because <laughs> as soon as this service is over, I'm going to go and tape it back on. Maybe she won't notice. This is a branch from a plum tree in our yard. The question I have is, is it alive or is it dead? It's dying. Well, what does that mean? That's like an in-between state, right? So is something that's dying alive? It is. Okay. All right. So if I lay this here, then could we say that it's just... In the process of being dead? Maybe something like that would work? It's in between? Okay. Well, at one time it had life, right? You can tell that. At one time it had life. Just like Adam and Eve, at one time they had life. In the garden, they were in the presence of God. No problem. Everything was good. Life was good. As we say now, it's all good. It was really all good back then. But what happened? They sinned, and what was the first response to their sin? Before God even said anything, it's the same response we struggle with today. The first response was they tried to cover it up. Now, when I was a teenager, any other misbehaving teenagers out there? So as a teenager, I was a pretty good kid, but I had my moments and I had come home late. I had a 12 o'clock curfew and i had come home late one night. I left late and so I get in and uh, my dad's there waiting up for me. And, and I say, hey, dad. He said, oh, ah, yeah, I see you're late, son. Yeah, I'm late. But, but dad, uh, I was out of gas. And I had to stop at the gas station to get gas. That's why I'm late. And he said, "Uh, Steve, I was actually watching when you came home and you came driving down from this way, but the gas station is that way. So can you kind of explain to me how that worked? And I was like, well, they built one just yesterday, Dad. They just built it. That was a bold-faced, self-protecting, fear of punishment lie. I did not want to get caught. I did not want to get punished. So I began to cover up my trespass the word trespass means to cross the line. My dad said a line. He said, midnight's your curfew. And I then tried to justify myself or cover myself through lies and deceit and hiding. So then God is coming. Like my dad was there. I couldn't, there was nowhere to run, nowhere to hide, man. I was busted. But there's this temptation in all of us to hide, to hide from God. See, when you know that you know that you know that you've been misbehaving, you'll hide from God. unless. Unless you know that God loves you and he invites you to come to him. You see, if you're not saved, if you're not walking with the Lord, look what he says there at the end of that section, verse three, that they were by nature, children of wrath, just as the others. That's what they were. They were disobedient children who had crossed the line, who had failed to meet expectations of God. And instead of coming to God, they tried to cover it or hide from it. And hide from God. And they said, first time, they said, we were afraid. A lot of people afraid of God. And if you're not a believer, then you have right to be afraid of God. Because ultimately there will be a day of reckoning, a day of judgment. But he says, that's what you used to be. That's how things were for you. But because of the cross, because of sin being forgiven, if my dad forgives me, if I know he's forgiven me, then do I need to fear punishment from him. I might be disciplined, but it's love. Punishment is punitive. It's condemning. And so if you know that you have a father who loves you and cares for you, he invites you not to run away from him when you misbehave, but he invites you to come to him and tell him all about it. This is huge for us to realize. So that's what we were. We were children of wrath, just as the others. A couple other things notice about the dead life. Because again, he says, when you were dead, here's what your life looked like. So dead people actually have a life. It's just a dead life. I mean, they have jobs, they have families, all that is going on, but spiritually disconnected from God. So in the process of they're dead, they don't know it yet. It just hasn't happened yet. It's happening in them. But the ultimate fulfillment of that doesn't come till later. So it's a desperate situation, by the way, for this branch. And this branch is desperate to find life, so first he says, when you live that way, when you were dead, you were just doing, walking, living according to the, uh, the culture of the age, you could say, the course of this world. See, when you're dead, even a dead fish can float downstream, right? Dead fish go with the current. They'll move, they'll go places, they'll go wherever the current carries them. So that's what life without God looks like. Just a dead fish floating along, culture steers you this way, culture steers you that way. But look what else he says about it. There's also not just living according to the course of this world. The next one's a little scarier. According to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, there is a spirit, a demonic spirit that deep down inside is encouraging you toward disobedience. That's voice that you hear that's encouraging you to walk away from God. That voice that you hear that's encouraging you to sin. Well, there's more voices than just your own. And he says it right here. There is a motivating factor. There is something directing. So the dead person lives a directed life. you got to be careful of who the director is though. Satan is the director of that life. And then again, he says, we all, and I like how he groups us all together. Look, if you come here today and you think, man, these are all good people and I'm a sinner and I don't fit in here. Look, he says, we all once conducted ourselves this way. This is how we all lived. You ain't teaching anybody nothing new about sin. We all know we've been there. We've done that. And praise the Lord, he's made us alive from that stuff. He says, we all conducted ourselves, look, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Isn't that interesting? So again, let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. I just living for pleasure, hiding from pain, living from pleasure. It's a painful world, isn't it? The world has dump truck loads of pain for people. Emotional pain, relational pain physical pain. There's tons of pain out there. And so the dead person lives to find pleasure, to feel good for the moment, even though it brings further death. Even though it brings further pain, I don't know what else to do. So this has become my crutch. Anybody ever been told that Christianity is a crutch? Yeah, they told me that. But there's people that are looking for crutches. The problem is dead men don't need crutches. They need life but the world is busy trying to find crutches. You know, when we talk about things rising, we can talk about more than Jesus. I'll tell you some other things that are rising. One of some trends that are rising, one of the trends that's rising is the nuns, not priests and nuns, not monastic kind of stuff. Nuns meaning those that on the box of religious affiliation, they check the word nun. 25% now of our country checks the word nun by religious affiliation. The question that the article asked was people thinking that maybe someday all this religion stuff will be irrelevant. You know, if we could look at the world and see some other trends, maybe we could say, okay, I could see why you would say that. The problem is what we see out there, it doesn't line up. So more people, there's a rise in people not affiliating with any religion, not affiliating with church. They don't say I'm Baptist or I'm Methodist or whatever. They say none. Well, while they're rising, you know what else is rising? Americans are taking more pills now than in history. Some of those are medical, medical purposes. Some of those are life-saving in nature. But the article talked not about those, but about our dependence on being a pill-based culture. I Meaning that the minute we see a have an ache or a pain or a need or a tear or sad, that we run right to the doctor, say, I need the pill. I think Jesus would be a lot easier to sell if he came in pill form. I mean, I think people would line up with Jesus. It's a pill. Let me take it. Where is it? Make me feel better. yeah. and the pills that people are taking, the article said the pills, part of the problem is, is the tremendous side effects. You've seen the commercials, right? Take this pill for gastrointestinal problems. And by the way, one of the side effects is gastrointestinal problems and suicidal thoughts and this, and and heart problems and heart attacks. And, you know, you go crazy and all these side effects, right? So this is a danger. This is not me saying, I'm just reading articles to you that I have found as I noticed and people noticed there's this rise in pill dependency, Because pills become a crutch. I need something to get by. I need something to feel better. The problem is, dead people don't need crutches. What do they need? They need life. You know what else is rising? One more. What else is rising is the number of nose jobs people are getting. It's true. More and more people going to their plastic surgeon, carrying their cell phone and saying, look, here's what I need you to fix. Here's what I need you to fix. And they're pointing out the problem with their nose. And the plastic surgeons have discovered this. They say, well, you don't need a nose job, you need a selfie stick. Because the problem is you're taking a picture of yourself with a fisheye lens, and the fisheye lens distorts your image. That's not really what you look like. You're really much worse than that, but no, no. (laughs) So people are looking at their songs, they want to improve their social media image. They want to improve their image, their care more about what people think they look like. So an increase in desire and requests for nose jobs because of a distorted view of themselves. And that's something that we face is this distorted view of ourselves. So those are just some of the ways that I think people are looking for crutches. We see these trends paralleling fewer people affiliated with church, more people popping pills. More people concerned about and finding their identity in the way they look, trying to stay young, trying to stay looking a certain way. You can't keep it. Trust me, you can't keep it. I'm finding that out. But verse four says, but God. You see, here's the answer for dead. You just know it. You know it in your heart. You just know that you don't know what the meaning is. You don't know what the purpose is. You don't know where you're going. You don't know what you're supposed to be doing. You're piddling your life away in front of the TV, piddling your life away in front of video games, trying to find and, and chase after every desire for pleasure that you ever had. Verse four is for you, but God. And he's telling them what they already have. But God, who is rich in mercy, is the world rich in mercy? The world is not rich in mercy. My credit card company, they're not rich in mercy. I mean, I am five minutes late without payment boom. But God, who is rich in mercy, notice this, because of his great love with which he loved us. Two words right here, even when. Can you underline those in your Bible? There's three places where two words make a lot of difference. Verse four, the first two words, but God, and then the words great love, and then the words even when. But God, great love, even when. That's when he made us alive. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his so-so love, how many of you have said goodbye to someone you loved in the last year? Did you stop loving them because they were dead? What would you do if you had the power? Would you bring them back to life? Theoretically speaking, I mean, if you had the power to give them new life, wouldn't you do it? But see, we don't have the power. That's what's so frustrating. But God, who is rich in mercy, because even when we were dead, he didn't stop loving you. He never stopped loving you, even in your deadness, even in your disobedience. When's the last time someone crossed a line with you? What's your response when someone crosses a line with you? You get, oh, oh, oh. cross my line, I'll show you a thing or two. It'll push my buttons. Is our response mercy and great love? That's why it doesn't say, but Steve. It doesn't say, but church. It says, but God. And you have to know this. God, because of his great love, he loves you not just with a superficial or theoretical or theological love. Anything you know about love, you've learned from God and magnify it by 10,000. Like you can't even feel and imagine the love that God can feel, that God has. And because of that great love that he has for you and had for me, when he saw me living the life I was living, and we're not talking about just drug addicts and people that are spent and burnouts and all that. This is people with good jobs, families doing athletics, doing sports, you know, getting good grades, but still dead. Because of his great love, he saw you whatever you were hiding behind. And he made me alive. Can you say that? He made me alive. You know what it takes to make this thing, keep it from dying? I mean, it's going to die unless the drastic measures are taken. How do I keep this branch alive? Just tape it back. A superficial attachment. Water. Put in water. For how long will that last? About a week. Then what? Dead. Oh, I got to graft it back in. Why? Does this branch have any life in it? What if I attach it to my children? No. How about the church? Does the church have life? Say no. Church doesn't have life. Not of its own, right? Look, the same article was talking about now because all these nun people are renouncing the church and kind of doing their own thing. They're gathering for secular Sunday service. Bunch of atheists saying, well, we're so used to this Sunday thing, we'll do it. It'll become a feel good club. And they said it's harder to organize atheists than it is to herd cats. It's hard to get them together. So meeting Sunday morning together and reading a book doesn't give us life. That's what the Pharisees said. They searched the scriptures, thinking in them that they would find life. But these are they, Jesus said, which speak of me. The church is the body of Christ, but Jesus is the one who gives it life. A church without Christ is a dead church. You can have all the the form of godliness. You can do all the rituals, pass the plate, have a baptism, whatever you want to do. But if Jesus ain't in it, it's not alive. And so this, it has to get plugged back in because that's what he says. Even when we were dead in trespasses, He made us alive. And that next word is vital, together. Together with Christ. You see, if Christ was dead and didn't rise from the dead, then if I was put into him, guess what I'd still be? Dead. But Christ, who is our life, once you are connected to him, what happens in this branch? It now has a source. Listen, this is the root of every human being's problem. Everybody is searching for life. Because you know that you know that you know in your quiet time, you struggle with what's your life's purpose? Why am I here? What's my meaning? Who am I anyway? The great deep questions. The word imaginations, by the way, we read earlier, the mind, it means the imagination of the deep thoughts. So the deep thoughts you think change from when you're unsaved to when you're saved. You used to imagine sin. Imagine, how can I find pleasure? But now, That all gets changed in Christ because we've been made alive together. The only way to make you alive is to connect you to Christ. He is not a crutch. He is my life support system. Dead people need life. He connected to me gives me life. He has made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And not only that, Look, what else happens to us, verse 6, because remember where Christ was? Christ was dead, and the power of God to raise him from the dead. The same thing, the power of God to make me alive. You think Paul's talking about some future thing? No, he's saying it to them right now. This is your life. Your life is you were dead, but God made you alive. Made you alive when? Now it's present tense. Tell me, you get that. He made you alive now. And I think that's our experience. We ought to feel that. We ought to experience that. So Christians ought to say, man, I am alive. Man, the sky has never looked so blue, and the flowers have never looked so good. I mean, I just have a different hope, a whole different way of thinking. And not only did he make us alive together, but look what else he did. Where did Christ go after he was alive? He ascended, and where is he seated? Right hand of the Father, the seat of honor, right? So guess where you're seated in the mind of God and the reality of eternity? Guess where you're seated right now? Calvary Chapel. No, no, yes, you're seated in Calvary Chapel, but God sees you and the reality of your life is you are seated at the place of honor with God. Now that's remarkable. Nobody on earth invites me to sit in any place of honor. I'll tell you that much. When's the last time you got to go to a Nobel prize thing and have a seat of honor, right? Nobody invites me to that stuff. We're just nobodies, right? So why are we so busy trying to impress people on the earth? Why are we so busy trying to glorify ourselves here Like, what seat of honor could anybody give me here that's better than being seated at the right hand of God in heaven? See, your future is secure. That makes an impact on how you think, right? All right. And he made us to sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So this has eternal ramifications. In the ages to come, the created universe looks at me sitting at the place of honor next to God. And I'm like, yep, right on. But I can't boast about it. That's what he says next. He says, and I'll come back to this. He says that he might show the exceeding riches of his grace, pay attention to that, and his kindness, pay attention to that, toward us. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. You see, you want to be seated at the right hand of God because of what you do. Here's my spiritual resume, God. I'd like to sit at the best seat, please. You know, you roll out the scroll, you know. Sunday school pin, perfect church attendance, mission trips, clean the bathrooms at church. All that stuff, just lay it out. That's how we want it to work. The problem is it doesn't work that way. Salvation is a free gift because you were dead. And all the good works, clean all the toilets you want, can't make you alive. Give all that you can in the offering box, but it can't make you alive. Only God can make you alive. Only God through Jesus can make you alive. And so he says, in eternity, the fact that Steve Fedden is seated at the right hand of God, the place of honor, other people can look like, how did he get there? Like, what is up with that? My friends from college, you know, like, what in the world is he doing at the seat of honor with God? And I just go, it's the grace of God, man. That's all, that, that's all I can say is who I am, who I'm becoming, man, that is just the grace of God. And speaking of whom I'm becoming, verse 10 finishes it up. For we are his workmanship. We're his poema, where we get the word poem. We're his piece of artwork. We're his construction. We're his creation. How many of you like to create stuff? Scrapbooking ladies. You know, I I love to get out in my blacksmith shop and pound on steel and do things like that. I love to create. It just feels so good when you sit back and you, you just make something. And the Bible says that's the reality is God took this dead, twisted piece of iron with my name on it. You see, here's what I find. You got a guy, man, he's grown up maybe in a dysfunctional home and it just starts to twist you and you deal with some abuses and it starts to twist you and maybe your mom and dad never happy with you. You know, you just grew up in foster care, never could be what you wanted to be. All these things in life played against you and just starts to twist you. You had expectations that were never met. Other people are to blame and just starts to twist you. And you think, man, I'm this twisted mess of iron, but I need life. Maybe if I get married, that's the answer. Boom. So you get married to another twisted piece of iron, right? How many of you know that creates a mess? How do we fit together? I don't know. We're all a mess. Ah. So then you go, you look at each other, and go, we're a mess. Let's have kids. <laughs> and they come out all twisted, right? And, and everybody's going, what are we all scratching our heads? And I don't know, let's get some pills. Maybe that'll help. But the Bible says you are his, listen carefully, you're his work of art. You look at that skillful craftsmanship, like, I love to see a skillfully made piece of ironwork. You just can tell the hammer blows were perfect and the, the way it was worked, and it's beautiful. And just like, that is awesome. Because there's a lot of people that go, I don't even know what I'm supposed to do. Like, I don't know what my life is about, don't know what my purpose is. Well, Paul said to further cap this discussion, he says, Not only that church in Ephesus, not only that church in Fluvana, not only have you been dead, but you've been made alive. And not only has God made you alive, but He's helping you find the purpose for which He created you. You see that? You are His workmanship created new, created to be what you're meant to be in Christ Jesus. You can never figure out what you're really made to be until you're connected with Christ because there's good works. God had a plan in His mind. The person that designed a hammer had a nail in mind when He did it. I mean, they just go together, right? They're meant to be together. You know, when's the last time you tried to drive a screw with a hammer? It just doesn't work. But God says, I've got a plan for you. I've got something in mind for you. And I'm going to recreate you from that mangled mess. I'm going to start to sort you out, straighten you out, teach you a thing or two, get you in the right direction, and help you fulfill the very purpose for which I had in mind when? Beforehand that we should walk in them. Beforehand that God had already has this plan for you in his mind. He already knows what he wants to do with you. But it only happens when you are connected to Christ. Outside of Christ, you'll never figure it out. You'll wander, you'll meander, you'll be lost. But in Christ, he says, now you'll become actually what God created you to be. he will get to make you what you know you were always meant to be. And to do the things, not the sinful stuff, not all that, let us eat and drink because tomorrow we die. Now you get to live for eternal purposes. For the things that God has planned for you to do. What are those things? I don't know, you gotta get saved and figured out. You see, unless this thing gets connected back to its origin, right? I can't just connect it to anything. I got to connect it to its origin. So without being connected, what's going to happen to this branch? Will it ever be what it was meant to be? Will it ever be what it was created to be? What was it created to be? It was created to give plums, right? It's created to be fruitful. It's created to be beautiful. And it will only ever be that. Listen very carefully, because this is my fear for us, my fear for someone in here not getting it. The only way that this will ever be what it was created to be is I have to plug it back into the source and life begins to flow through and the flowers begin to get brighter again. It perks up and all of a sudden fruit starts to happen. Now, did the branch produce the fruit? No, otherwise it could do it right now. All of it comes from the life that it gets. Look, we're human beings created in the image of God. That's who we are. And there is no other source for your life than God. And my hope this Easter is that you'll hear what I'm trying to say because this is life and death matters. And it gives God the greatest glory when you become what he created you to be. And he uses your life to show through all the ages, his kindness to make something useful out of this mess. God is a master at taking a mess and making it beautiful.